Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, the tale of two Trumps, specifically the two Trumps on Syria. This is Trump 1 from about 10 days ago. I want to get out. I want to bring our troops back home. I want to start rebuilding our nation. And this was Trump 2 on Twitter Wednesday. Quote, get ready, Russia, because they will be coming nice and new and smart. You shouldn't be partners with a gas-killing animal who kills his people and enjoys it. So which Trump do we believe? Jen, like, which one? Uh, I guess we'll find out pretty soon, right? So the thing is that, you know, Trump seems to actually believe both of these things, right? Like, he both wants to get the roughly 2,000 or so troops that we have officially stated on the record uh, that we have in Syria. Um, He wants to bring them home. He is not really big on nation building or on long-term kind of military adventures abroad. At the same time, as we saw last time back in 2017, um, in April, he responds really um, strongly to you know, photos of children choking on chemical attacks, right? Um, and so he kind of set this like red line that you can't do this, Assad. And if you do, we will respond forcefully. He did last time. He did respond, um, sent cruise missiles to strike the kind of airport where uh, the the chemical attack had been launched from, apparently. Um, and that's kind of what's going on this time is he again saw these horrible reports of this chemical attack in Syria and is saying you can't do this. Um, I don't necessarily think those two things in Trump's mind are mutually exclusive, right? Bringing troops home and doing this kind of one off attack. The broader problem is what does this mean strategically for like a comprehensive serious strategy? Yeah. And there isn't really one. There's not really right. a well-stated or well-thought-out one. Look, there's this famous quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, which is that a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. And that might as well be the Trump administration's foreign policy mantra, especially when it comes to Syria. Right? Like, yes, the goals of ending nation-building and foreign intervention are inconsistent with intervening in a civil war to try to deter chemical weapons use in the future. In a broad strategic sense, those things are inconsistent. Trump wants to pursue both of them at the same time because on the one hand, he has an emotional abhorrence for nation building. And on the other hand, he has an emotional abhorrence for photos of kids being gassed. But with Syria, if we step back slightly, there for Obama and Trump, there have been kind of two questions. One question is, does the U.S. want Assad out? And the second question is, how much are we willing to invest in risk to make that happen? Would we arm the rebels? Would we bomb? If we bomb, who do we bomb? How much do we bomb? And I feel like neither president has really answered those questions. And with Trump, the kind of disparity between the two questions and between the lack of answers is even wider. Right. So Obama was very similar in the sense that he, you know, the legacy of the Iraq war kind of set this lesson for, you know, the perils of foreign intervention and for long term military intervention and and occupation and nation building and all of this. So Obama absolutely did not want to do that. He wanted to bring troops home from Iraq. He did not want to get involved in Syria and yet another Middle Eastern conflict, trying to topple yet another Middle Eastern dictator that would end up being, you know, decades long war. And in some respects, understandably, and at the same time, there were a lot of people who were like, hey, you know, we're, there are Syrians who are trying to have this democratic uprising and who are fighting against this, you know, brutal dictator who's gassing his own people. You know, can you intervene, help? And so there was this kind of conflict within his administration of trying to, you know, people pulling on both sides. And Obama tried to kind of walk this kind of half-assed middle way where he was like, okay, we'll tacitly kind of like through the CIA arm and train some rebels. But we're going to have really high vetting standards to make sure hopefully these weapons don't end up going to bad guys like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And also we're going to try to force 
the rebels and convince them to basically only fight ISIS in Syria, right? Like, we'll give you these weapons. We get that what you really want to do is fight Assad because that's the entire point of what you guys are doing. But if you guys could just mainly fight ISIS, that would be cool. And so because of that, we had a problem. The U.S. had a problem with, you know, recruiting people to join this kind of effort. Because they're like, no, like we, we want to fight this revolution. This is the whole point of what we're doing. And we were mostly just focused on this ISIS mission. And Trump has kind of inherited that and kind of taken it one step further. He has escalated the anti-ISIS mission into pretty significant effect, right? It's been fairly successful. But we're still at that same point that, okay, well, what about the rest of the civil war? What do we do with that? What about Assad? And that we still don't have an answer for. Zach, it Assad is winning, basically. By almost any measure, he has more territory than he did before. The rebels have been demolished. Like, you look at photos of Aleppo that the rebels once held, and it's like Leningrad after World War II. So if you're Assad, as best as you can try to project yourself into the mind of Assad. Try to have uh, a weak chin. Yeah, and a long neck. So you're Assad. We make fun of him uh, visually, normally, because we don't like to body shame, but he's a murderous dictator who gasses his own people. Well done. Well caveated. But if you're him and you're winning, and you know that a chemical attack has at least the chance of this unpredictable American president bombing you, why do it? So no one has a good answer to that question, because again, nobody regularly talks to the crazy dictator in the US. But we have a few guesses, right? One of them is that it makes strategic sense. The general idea of the Assad campaign right now in conjunction with the Russians and the Iranians is to crush the rebels by crushing their will to fight as well as their supplies. Um, So one analyst calls it siege, starve, and surrender, and that's as grim as it sounds, right? It involves mass attacks on civilian populations to erode support for the rebels and their will to fight. And chemical attacks are an especially horrifying way of doing that. The strategic logic isn't crazy. It's not tactical in the sense that you know you really can only use these weapons to accomplish these goals, but it's psychological in the sense that it's an especially horrifying kind of weapon. Right, because like just to be clear, a chemical weapon isn't a targeted pinpoint strike, right? This isn't not to say that drone strikes don't also kill innocent people. They do all the time. But this isn't like a single cruise missile targeted at a single place. Like chemical weapons, they disperse, right? They get women and children, and that's that's part of the horrifying psychological effect you're talking about. Yeah, and it's it, you don't really know. A lot of people don't know how to avoid them. Which, which raises the, like, one, if we try to separate out kind of the, the why strike now question, there is the related question of he uses barrel bombs to kill women and children, which are also not precise. You know, he just bombs randomly from the air and kills women and children. And I, I think there is a fair question. I'm curious kind of how, how you'd answer it, but why chemical weapons, right? Like, if he's killing children tens of thousands of children with other things. And now he's using chemical weapons to kill 40 people, 1,000 people, which is awful, but is not tens of thousands. Why is it okay to kill children with barrel bombs, but not okay to kill children with chemical weapons? And it isn't, right? There's no way to make a case on this point based solely on the situation on the ground in Syria. You can't do it consistently. You have to make a broader argument about what's called the norm against chemical weapons internationally. This idea that we've had that on the battlefield, chemical weapons are too horrifying, they're too indiscriminate, and they can't be allowed under the international rules of war. And obviously, various murderous regimes over the course of history have made exceptions to that rule. But for the most part, it's been a fairly effective international norm. 
And it has, in fact, been treated as being outlawed by most countries on Earth. And so Assad continually using these chemical weapons and then getting away with it suggests that anyone else can do the same thing. Right. I think it's the getting away with it part that really counts here. It's also really important to talk about the fact that the way Assad and Russia spin this when it happens, right? So they don't say like, yeah, we did this. Oops, sorry. They don't say, yeah, we did this. And it's justified. They, they don't say they did it at all. Instead... They start by saying this didn't happen at all, and then they quickly shift because people get proof on the ground, saying that it was the other guys, it was the bad guys, it was Al-Qaeda who did this. It's the White Helmets, which is like this Syrian kind of civilian medical defense kind of group that goes in and tries to help I mean, it's a group that, right, that pulls people out of the literally rubble. Literally pulls people out of the rubble, um, but... According to Assad and Russia, if you ask them, it's this U.S. created Al Qaeda affiliate something something. It's all kind of insane. Right. It's the international conspiracy. equivalent of yelling fake news, fake news. Right. Exactly. Really but it's not even just fake news. It's saying actually the other guys did it. Look how bad they are. These terrorists, these Al Qaeda people, they're using chemical weapons. This is why you need to support us. Right. This is why you, the U.S., need to support us, Assad and Russia and Iran, because we are fighting these evil terrorists. Meanwhile, everyone who can you even just look at the evidence for two seconds? It's like, okay, no, actually Assad and Russia did this. But the narrative, right, the the propaganda war that's going on is really powerful. And you've seen it even in the U.S. You've seen like otherwise conscientious, fairly re- relatively conscientious American journalists and, and British journalists get caught up in this going, what if we don't know? What if it, what if it wasn't Assad? It's Assad. Assad is the one who has access to sarin. You have to have a pretty robust kind of infrastructure to launch these kind of massive chemical attacks. And they do and they have. And it's really clear. So it's not just like, oh, we can get away with it. It's that we can also muddy the water so that nobody's really clear what the truth is. I mean, the first part of that is really interesting to me because I think that you have evidence of chemical weapons being used on the very large scale, like in Syria, and also on the very small scale. There was this case in England where a former Russian double agent who was living in England with his daughter, uh, their last name was Skripal, were poisoned by a nerve gas in the middle of Salisbury. So you had in England a spy and his daughter poisoned with a nerve agent. It seemed like they were going to die. Thankfully, they've both survived. But there was just this shock that Russia would use a chemical weapon on European soil from the Skripal case. So you've got kind of like the micro-targeted. And Kim Jong-un before that killed one of his half-brothers by having sarin smeared on the face while he was in an airport in Kuala Lumpur. Right. So there's like this idea of chemical weapons being normalized on the small scale and the big scale. And that, frankly, to me, does seem legitimately scary. So, yeah, I mean, I I absolutely agree that, like, we shouldn't use chemical weapons, right? They're a horrifying weapon. At the same time, you have Trump kind of openly talking about building up our nuclear arsenal and, like, throwing around the idea of potentially getting into a conflict with North Korea and saying, you know, we will rain down fire and fury unlike the world has ever seen. And, you know, my nuclear button is bigger than yours. So... Like, it's all well and good to be, like, against chemical weapons and the indiscriminate killing of people. You should probably also maybe check yourself when you're talking about maybe nuking another country. Because if you want to talk about indiscriminate weapons, a cloud of sarin, it's horrifying and it's going to kill dozens of people. A nuclear weapon, we're talking about thousands. So I just, again, going back to this kind of lack of ideological or even kind of rational consistency, right, if you're thinking through, like, visceral human reactions of course you're gonna you know especially trump as a father looking and seeing these children choking and dying of course that's horrifying of course you're gonna react viscerally and emotionally 
But when you're actually thinking about like policy options and things like that in other realms, you need to maybe realize that your choices have similar effects in other ways. Bringing this conversation back a little to Syria, there's a question as to like, would striking Syria actually reinforce the chemical weapons norm? Because it didn't seem to last time, like last April, literally a year ago, the same thing happened, right? Trump saw a chemical attack in Syria, another large one. He got really upset. He launched a couple of bombs. And a year later, the exact same thing happened. Not only was Assad not deterred from using chemical weapons again, but he just went ahead and did it. That is even more damaging to the chemical weapons norm than if the United States had done nothing and Assad went along and did it because it showed that the punishment that it incurred was minimal at best. I mean, the counterfactual, I, I take the broader point. The counterfactual is who knows if he would have carried out more absent than initial strike. True. I, I tend to disagree on that slightly. I mean, obviously, it didn't stop him. But I do think that chemical weapons, their spread is uniquely horrifying to me. And something, something other than saying it's a red line and then not doing anything is better than saying it's a red line and then and not doing anything. But part of what I find kind of alarming about all this, again, Zach, and I'm glad you did, kind of staying on Syria, is the U.S. military can bomb Assad, right? The U.S. military can bomb his planes, his bases, his cities, but they need to be told what to bomb. And you had these kind of two amazing leaks out of the Pentagon that give you a sense, I think, I used to cover the Pentagon, and leaks were not this common, this detailed. But there were two leaks this week that I think really give you a sense of how scared people there are about Trump as commander-in-chief. One was that Jim Mattis, the defense secretary, was worried about what he saw as spray and pray, which was his notion of just fire missiles, spray the missiles, and then pray they do something. Basically, Jim Mattis saying, give me some sense of what you want, because just firing missiles isn't enough. And then an even more amazing leak that Joe Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, at a meeting with Trump, said to him finally, because he was so frustrated, you are not being productive. Tell us specifically what you want. I mean, think about that, right? So it's the highest ranking general in the U.S. military saying to the commander in chief, I don't have any fucking idea what you want me to do. Tell me specifically. And we know Trump does generalities and he does lies and he doesn't falsehoods. He doesn't really do specifics. It seems, you know, that that may actually have paid off, though, which is interesting this time around, because, you know, last time it was pretty quickly that we saw a, a U.S. response, right, with the cruise missile strike. This time, you know, we've had a lot of threats and bluster with Trump, you know, warning Russia the missiles are coming, they're on the way. Um, but, you know, we're now several days later and it still hasn't happened. And then Trump tweets today, you know, I never said when they were coming or, you know, if they would be coming at all. I, I didn't say anything. You don't know. You know, you have looks like a broader coordination or efforts to coordinate with allies, with France, with the UK to kind of talk through maybe it be a broader strike. I think, again, going to the point earlier about the deterrence factor, whether this kind of one off airport strike, couple cruise missiles hitting, you know, an airbase that we told them in advance, of course, you know, get your get your people out of the way. We told the Russians. Yeah, just to be clear. And, you know, it seems like we have a kind of broader strategy this time, or at least an attempt to try to coordinate. So I don't know if that is the impact of Mattis and Dunford kind of reining the president back in and saying, wait, we can't just do this again. You know, it's not going to have an impact. We need to talk through maybe a, a more robust kind of coordinated strategy. And it does seem like that's happening, which, you know, it remains to be seen what's going to come out of it. We still don't have strikes yet. I, I don't know. There's two problems with Syria intervention, and they directly trade off with each other. So you start with, you know, this kind of nonsense nothing strike that we had last year, like nothing. There there were no consequences to it. It didn't deter anything by Assad. It just overall seemed ineffectual. 
Then on the other side, you have the risk of a, a more escalated, coordinated campaign like the one Jen was talking about, which is that you get roped into the conflict, that you do too much and so much that you get pulled into a, a broad intervention in the Civil War, which both Obama and Trump have tried to avoid for very good reasons, I should say. I don't want to make this sound like the obvious choice was to intervene in Syria. I myself have consistently thought that intervening against Assad would be a disaster for the United States. And I think that Obama and Trump are both right to be hesitant of doing that. I think there are really good arguments on both sides. There are. <laughs> it's a, it's a <laughs> dipl- diplomat gen. It's know, really I, hard. It's there's There are yeah, strong arguments yeah. on both sides. Knowing a lot of Syrians personally, I, I also understand why they were like, look, you guys are willing to intervene fucking everywhere and you can't come into this. It's like clearly a pro-democracy uprising trying to fight against someone who's gassing their own people. Maybe help us out here. And I totally understand the other side, which is like, Iraq didn't go so well. Maybe we shouldn't do that again. And so just imagine if, you know, in, in some kind of broader wave of strikes, uh, a NATO warplane bombs a Russian emplacement. Imagine if a U.S. plane gets shot down and a pilot gets taken captive by the Assad government. Imagine the potentials for escalation in all of those scenarios and not just escalation with Assad. We're talking about escalation with Iran, escalation with Russia, conflict with Hezbollah, right? There are all sorts of different pro-Assad actors that are involved in there. And that gets scary really fast. Yeah, a lot of this is really kind of overlooked the Iran part of this. It's it's really glad you brought up Iran. Like they're also – a really major actor in Syria right now, and they have huge stakes in this conflict, arguably way more than Russia, right? In terms of like the regional kind of stability, the fact that they're, you know, Hezbollah, their proxy is fighting on the ground in Syria. You have the Israel factor, right? So you have you have Russia calling Netanyahu, you have Putin calling Netanyahu and saying, hey, tell the Americans, tell your buddy Trump not to do a retaliatory strike. So you have all these actors, it's this massive kind of proxy conflict. So again, getting to the point of like, well, yeah, it's understandable that Trump doesn't want to get roped into this. So then what do you do? How do you respond? Do you respond? Do you own a service business? Are you still using pen and paper to schedule visits, to try to update your customers, to process payments, to do all the things that are kind of hard and annoying to do? Because if you are, you'd probably think correctly, it'd be wonderful to be able to do that from your phone. And you can. It's with an app called House Call Pro, which is designed for any kind of home service, whether you provide plumbing, whether you clean carpets, whether you do HVAC stuff, whether you're an electrician, this helps you do the kind of things that you would normally try to do on pen and paper, but could do them for you on your phone. So that means scheduling and dispatching. It means sending customers text updates while you're doing the work. It means online booking. It means payment processing. And it means doing it without pen and paper, doing it on your phone, and doing it quickly. So if you want to get all of that, if you want to get your service business organized and streamlined, Go to housecallpro.com slash worldly. Tell them Vox Worldly sent you and they'll waive your $99 activation fee. Again, it's housecallpro.com slash worldly. Housecallpro.com slash worldly. The Great Courses Plus is a streaming service that was created for people like us. And if you haven't signed up yet, you should. Here's why. It gives you a chance to learn from the world's best professors and experts about virtually any topic that interests you. World history, science, art, music, travel, photography. There's unlimited access to thousands of fascinating lectures. You can watch them anywhere, or you can listen along through the Great Courses Plus app. So here's one example. It's a brand new course called The Great Trials of World History. It talks about the Scopes Monkey Trial, the trials of Socrates, Oscar Wilde, and the Chicago Eight, just to name a few. 
It's a look into how these legal proceedings were catalysts for change and how they continue to shape our understanding of history. I know you'll get a lot out of The Great Courses Plus, and they're giving our listeners a chance to get a free trial with unlimited access to their entire library if you go to a special URL. So to start exploring today, sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. For elsewhere, we're going to Hungary, where a far-right leader just won a victory so big in an election so obviously fake that it would normally be hard to take it seriously. But we need to take the re-election of Prime Minister Viktor Orban seriously because he says things like this. So, according to a translation from the New York Times, he's saying, we are fighting an enemy that is different from us, not open but hiding, not straightforward but crafty, not honest but base, not national but international, does not believe in working but speculates with money, does not have its own homeland but feels it owns the whole world. So that that sounds anti-Semitic. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're talking about us. I think so too. Yeah. Orban has been in power for about eight years. And over the course of those eight years, his regime has gotten steadily more xenophobic, uh, anti-Semitic, and authoritarian. Uh, and so, anti-Muslim. Well, yeah, that's that's in many ways the core of the appeal, right? Is that Orban has set himself up as the defender of Europe against mass migration, not so subtly Muslim migration and refugees, and this has made him popular. It's not the election was rigged in the sense that opposition parties were not given a fair ability to compete. And things were gerrymandered to the point where it would be very difficult for them to win. But Orban's also genuinely popular in Hungary and his xenophobia and his opposition to immigration and attacks on minority populations has resonated with a lot of Hungarian voters. So it's a little bit like Putin. Yes, it's rigged, but also he's popular. And Jen, also, he's somebody who explicitly in some ways cast this in religious terms. This is a Christian guy saying, I'm going to defend Christian Hungary against this horde of invading foreigners, obviously meaning Muslims. But there's something really interesting just to that, that this isn't just – he doesn't run just as a politician on normal politician things. He runs as, I'm a defender of Christian Europe against invading Muslims. Right. And it's again, it's that same narrative that we see in Putin pushing with these far right parties across Europe. Um, so after the the Charlie Hebdo uh, terror attacks um, back in 2015, um, world leaders kind of all came together and marched in Paris in solidarity, which absolutely they should have done. Right. But Orban went back home and told Hungarian TV, quote, we will never allow Hungary to become a target for immigrants. We do not want to see significantly sized minorities with different cultural characteristics and backgrounds among us. We want to keep Hungary as Hungary. So we've seen that same kind of like Britain for Britain, France for the French, right? This kind of radically just hardcore xenophobia. And it's all pinned around this kind of anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant counterterrorism kind of fear that it's been, you know, in some countries, right? Like in France, it's a legitimate fear. They've had actual attacks, right? Also in the UK. But it's turned into this kind of broader fear mongering that's become this vast kind of populist nationalist movement that's gotten really ugly and dark and again has brought up anti-Semitism again and brought in kind of all of the ugliest parts of humanity. And Viktor Orban was one of the first kind of harbingers of that, that wave that we've all kind of been fearing and been seeing kind of, you know, across Europe more broadly, some parties with more success than others. But Viktor Orban was kind of the, the vanguard of that. 
It's important also to to understand how this xenophobia works as a political appeal in tandem with his authoritarianism. So Orban has never uh, launched a coup. He's never declared martial law. That's not how he works, right? And that's not how a lot of authoritarians work. What he does do is corrupt the neutral institutions in Hungary, a free press, the court system, um, the way that elections work, to the point where it all seems like a democracy and it all feels democratic, but it isn't in actuality. And so this allows him to leverage the popularity he gets, which is not, by the way, like everyone in Hungary loves him, but it's enough. He got less than half of the popular vote, but controlled over two thirds of the seats in parliament, which is enough to change the Hungarian constitution. So the rules are, are rigged in such a way that allows him to translate the hardcore support that he has, the equivalent of Trump's base, and, and turn that into a majority that allows him to do whatever he wants. And part of what he's also done, and you know, Zach, as you're describing, a leader who attacks the free press and attacks the courts and questions democracy, it sounds similar, right? It sounds like a certain American president but there's another part of part of what Orban does that is really similar and in some cases identical to what happens in American politics on the on the side on the Republican side on the far right but increasingly kind of centrist Republicans. Viktor Orban has personalized some of his anti-Semitism in George Soros. He's a 87-year-old Holocaust survivor, a billionaire, someone who funds really good causes for the most part around the world, and he has been seen and portrayed by Viktor Orban as this like puppet master, this kind of Jewish guy pulling the strings and harming his country. So he's really gone after George Soros as a person. Well, Republicans have too. And so when they talk about who's actually bankrolling movements that they don't like, they specifically have said some Republicans that Soros bankrolled Black Lives Matter, that the Women's March was bankrolled by George Soros, that Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem was because of George Soros. And so you've got this question of how much far-right politics here translates to Europe or vice versa. And then weirdly in the middle, you've got George Soros kind of just stuck there. When there's a, a Jewish guy who's got a lot of money and is using it internationally to, to promote democracy and uh, other liberal causes, he becomes this natural nexus for right-wing conspiracy thinking, right? Because that – his – actions allow them to cast everything. And the fact that he's not like a very public guy, he doesn't do a lot of interviews and stuff like that, allows them to cast him as, as the center of the dark conspiracy. And they don't have to say Jewish anymore, right? Everybody knows what you're saying. Right. It's a dog whistle. You yeah. say Soros, that it's a stand-in for the Jews are running things behind the scenes. The, way that, the same way like foreigners transforming our culture. Cough. Right. Like we know what they're talking about without having to say it. But then when we say – you're a bigot. You're talking about how Muslims are bad and Jews are evil and manipulating things. They say, we didn't say that. It's this way to get at latent prejudices and in the case of Islamophobia, not so latent in public discourse without having to cross a rhetorical line that could lead to mass sanctions. In US politics, if you were affiliated with an anti-Semitic group, uh, you'd be in a lot of trouble as a Republican. But you know, you've got Representative Steve King talking about how great Orban is. Now he's this incredible defender of Western civilization and he's not punished for it because Islamophobia is sadly mainstream in the United States and Orban's anti-Semitism is couched enough in rhetoric that's acceptable internationally that King can get away with it. And the, well, and with Orban, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, congratulated Orban on his victory. 
And frankly, Netanyahu has himself attacked George Soros. So the whole Netanyahu family actually has gone all in on this Soros stuff. And for Netanyahu, the head of a Jewish state, to congratulate anti-Semite, kind of weird. Right. Like when you actually have Netanyahu, and he got in big trouble for this. You had He was the first, uh, I think, Israeli prime minister since the 80s to go visit Hungary. And he went and met with Orban. And he was caught on a hot mic. And we have a great piece on Vox that our, our former colleague Sarah Wildman wrote about this. Netanyahu was caught on a hot mic slamming Europe and basically just talking shit about Europe and, and how they're so like anti-Israel and all of this on a hot mic with like the prime minister of Hungary, which with all these like kind of other very anti-non-democratic leaders. And, you know, he got a lot of shit for that because, you know, you're the leader of the Jewish state, but you're slamming Europe in favor of Viktor Orban. I, I want to bring this conversation to a more hopeful point, which there's a— Oh, bless a, your heart. Yeah, there's a a good piece by a scholar, Cass Moody, at Georgia, and he wrote it in The Guardian. Um, and Cass's point is that Orban is presiding over a dying Hungary. His past eight years in power have led to a massive brain drain of the young and talented from Hungary to more liberal countries. And you could – Hungarian population growth is, is extremely low. And so you could see this not as the harbinger of a newly authoritarian and populist Europe, but as a kind of uh, last dying stand of old school fascism that we saw in the 20th century. And the fact that, you know, the – optimistic read of the situation is that Hungary is fascist now. It's like not great, but at the same time, it's still better than Europe is going down a dark path again. So we'll end there in part because the phrase hot mic makes me laugh and ending with a bit of a laughter after this very depressing series of topics is probably a good thing. Thanks as always to our producers, Jillian Weinberger and Bird Pinkerton, to our social media manager, Julie Bogan. If you like what you heard, we hope you do, come find us, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or any place else you get your podcasts.